Lord. Amen? So we love you guys again. Let's Bibles open them up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 today. So we're going to do a complete um, flip from where we've been in Thessalonians. We've been covering some pretty heavy scriptures on prophecy. We've covered the rapture. We've covered the second coming of Christ. We've covered the Antichrist the last couple of weeks. Um, I don't know how you guys have been feeling, but, you know, my wife is like my, she's my barometer, you know, and I was asking her after last week, and she's like, yeah, I'm done with all that Antichrist talk and all this. You know, it's like every week was this stuff about Antichrist and this and that, but it was just right in the scripture. We were just covering what we were doing, so I think she's alone, right? The rest of you guys were totally digging all the Antichrist talk, and, and we're growing through it, right? Like, so, but I'll tell you, chapter three is could be kind of a letdown almost if, if, you know, from where we've been and how high we've had to stay in order to cover the scriptures that we've been covering. And, but, you know, the, one of the things I've tried to communicate to you guys oftentimes about the Apostle Paul is, um, first of all, I don't think we can have enough um, respect for the Apostle Paul of who he was. And I can't put him on a high enough pedestal, really can't. I mean, obviously, you know, Jesus was on a whole class of his own. But as far as Christ followers, you know, in all of humankind, Paul is very unique. Like, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she has a very unique position and will for all of eternity, you know. Um, but the Apostle Paul was used by God greater than any other um, person that's ever lived on planet Earth. He writes half of the New Testament. He, he has the greatest mind that God has ever created. He's the greatest writer in human history and, and on and on and on, the accolades of who the Apostle Paul is and how God used him. Now, Paul came along, as you guys know, he came along after the disciples, after Jesus died and rose again. Paul didn't get saved until... Um, sometime after that, but then what Jesus did, the Bible tells us, is that he personally, post-resurrection, met with the Apostle Paul and trained him for three years on the backside of the desert. So as, as you know, like in the Garden of Eden, remember how God would walk with Enoch in the cool of the day and, and, and was friends with him. God would talk to Abraham face-to-face as a man talks to a man. Well, Jesus has this unique relationship with Paul, post-resurrection, where he's training him. And so and Paul has this like egghead mind, you know. I talk about some people that way. We had a we had a professor in college named Pastor Bob, and I've told you guys this before. But Pastor Bob was the one who would never give you a one word answer. So we went two years of Bible college, and all the students would have a have a, a game to see if you could get Bob to answer a one, you know, a question with one word. And for two years, nobody ever did it, you know. And you'd just come up with the craziest stuff, like you'd get a bowl of ice cream and just say, "Hey, Bob, is that cold?" And he'd say, well, you know, the way temperature is formed in the, and he'd give you this explanation of what cold was and the science behind it and, you know, or you just come up with some crazy stuff. You could never, because his mind just didn't work that way. And the Apostle Paul, again, with that type A mind, the, the fascinating thing about the Apostle Paul is that he also was very practical. And he could just, you know, he could have that, that egghead mind and be very deep through Romans and the things he wrote. And he also could just give you very practical, everyday Christian living. You know what the Bible says about itself is that everything that you need for godly living in God is found in the Word of God. Everything you need. If you're new to church here this morning and, um, you know, one of the things that Paul did was he traveled and he planted churches. And when he planted a church, he would hear about the problems, the strengths, and then he would write letters back to the different churches. And in Corinthians, they had a different set of problems he was dealing with. In um, Thessalonians, he had a different set of problems he was dealing with. And so Paul would write and address these things. And then as we have the entirety of the scriptures, we get the entirety of everything that God wants to communicate for living. Amen? All right, are you guys there? Second Thessalonians chapter 
Paul says, finally, brethren. Now, really quickly, I always do that, huh? Psych. So, um, I just want to give you a little kind of quick synopsis. So, the Thessalonians, Paul was there for how long? Anybody remember? Three weeks. Shortest time he spent in any church that he planted. But what's fascinating is that even though he was only there for three weeks, he gives them the most deepest topics that we find in, in really any of the epistles when it comes to end times, the rapture. Now I got two. Thanks, Jay. Um, when I was in seminary, they said, you know, when you want to get a drink of water, you make a, a really deep point and everybody takes this sigh. And then, and then during that moment where everybody's either laughing or sighing, then that's the point where you, you stop and you take a drink. That's hermeneutics. So anyways, he covered the rapture, right? And, the, and the, they thought that they had missed the rapture. And so, and then in, in the next chapter, they, he told them, no, you didn't miss the rapture. The rapture hasn't happened. And then another false letter came and it said, you guys didn't miss the rapture, but the tribulation started, the seven-year tribulation, and you have missed that. And then Paul writes in the second chapter, a year later, he gets back and he says, no, you didn't miss the tribulation either, and we haven't entered into the tribulation. And then um, he talks about Antichrist and all those reasons why. And then we get to chapter 3, and again, now he goes back to just the, the last chapter, the salutation, and real, practical Christian living. No more prophecy, no more of those things. Verse 1 says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. You know, um, it, it was very common for Paul to ask folks to pray for him. We find it in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Titus, and a couple other of his books. You know, and you would think, again, the Apostle Paul, because he was so close to God, that he wouldn't need people to pray for him. But I think that we can, we can grow so much from this, knowing that if Paul wanted people praying for him personally and praying for his ministry, that, that we need to be a people who pray. You know, and as a church, we, we, we've, we've said that this church, and any church really, we move forward on our knees. And anything that happens, and I think really we're going to discover one day that all the power and the potential that we had as Christ followers to tap into that we left unchecked because we didn't pray or because we didn't really believe in and, and really, really focus on, on being a church of praise. You know, Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he said that when he turned over the tables, he said that my house shall be called what? House of prayer. You know, we, we've, tried to, we've tried to do that here. You know, there was a pastor, a Calvary pastor that I looked up to when I came here and one of the things when, when you would talk about this particular pastor, everybody would say, man, everything that that church does and everything they have is, is covered in prayer. Like they're really known for a church that prays. Like they have a great reputation. I said, man, we want to build that reputation in Tooele when we get here. And we want to want to be known as people who pray. And we've, we've done lots of things to, to, to follow along those lines. But, you know, as a Christ follower, we, we have to be people who pray. Amen? It just, it, doesn't, it just doesn't work, right? It's not if you don't spend time in prayer. But in order to pray... It doesn't mean when your friend says, hey, you know, my wife is sick, will you pray for her, that you text them some praying hands and go about your way. Like, that's, that's not praying. It's being practical and intentional in our prayer life and in, in spending time with the Lord. You know, and I tell people, how do you, you know, sometimes people pray, you hear people pray in public, right? And it's like, it's like so good, you're embarrassed to pray after them, you know? And like, they, you know, like I'm going to sound silly and, and praying out loud in front of other people. And I say, if you want to get really good at praying in groups, here's how you do it. You practice at home alone often. And the more you pray, 
the more you spend time with the Lord, the more that grows. I always pray with worship music on. I pray with the Word of God opened up. And, you know, I pray a lot in the jacuzzi, too. No Word of God there. But at least I stay awake, you know. If I pray on my bed, it's usually, it's over. But being intentional. You know, one of the things that we've encouraged, right, in, in, our, in our living, and it's biblical, is that you, you set your alarm 15 minutes every day. And you're intentional as Christians to be people who pray. That, that you get up and it's whatever it is, you know, you spend that time in devotions. And we know that devotions is not something you do to be devoted to God 15 minutes every day. It's a life you live. You pray all day. Paul said pray without ceasing, which means as you, you know, you're dealing with your day, you're going through problems, you're, you have a question, you have a, something at work that you're silently praying. You're asking God to help you and guide you and lead you all day as we pray. But the point is that we need to be a people who pray. Amen? We have a prayer ministry here, by the way. There's some purple cards in the back of all your seats. And so we want to be praying for you guys. We want to be praying for each other. I look around the room. I see lots of people that are on the prayer team. Um, and if you have prayer requests, if you need prayer, you fill that purple card out. You drop it in the prayer box. One is for tithes. One is for prayer requests. And then it will circulate about two weeks. And we'll be covering that prayer and your request. And then if two weeks later you want to make sure whatever it is is continuing to be covered, put another one in about every two weeks. So we also have a way you can email prayers in. If you want to be a part of our prayer team and our prayer ministry, um, she's not here today, but um, Kevin and Darlene Jenkins oversee the prayer ministry. You can join there. And uh, so we want to pray. So anyways, Paul says, pray for us. Now, again, Paul is not shy in asking people to pray for him. He does it. It's very common in the Bible. And then what does he want to be prayed for? Paul says that I would be happy, healthy, and wealthy. No, he says, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And so the word of God being run swiftly is that the word of God would go out. And that it's, the, it's in the word of God and teaching the word of God. You know, we used to, we used to see, get these like church growth programs all the time and different things. And I looked into a couple of them and I read them and, you know, it was never really a Calvary thing. But... In these church growth programs, there's it's program after program after program of things you do to to try to get your church to grow. But you know, Calvary never did any of those things over the years. And when we would attend the different seminars, the different churches would say, "Oh, we're doing this, and we're you know, we're we're changing our name, and we're like these weird things to programs and people." And then they would say to 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 us, "What are you guys doing?" Say, "Well, we're we're just teaching the Bible." What? You know, they used to say, Pastor Chuck Smith. How is your church growing so fast? What are you doing? What are your programs? Chuck would say, I'm just teaching the Bible. And they'd say, yeah, we, we know that. We know that. But what else are you doing? What, what's the real program? He'd say, we're just teaching the Bible. And it works. It's effective. Because as we teach the Word of God, chapter by chapter, line upon line, the more Bible we give out, the more Bible you get, the more Bible you guys take in. And again, you guys know you're not going to get enough on a Sunday morning, right? It, it, and we also teach you to be people of the Word so that you can open up the Bible for yourselves, that you can understand it, that you can read it. And you can't do anything in an hour a week and be good at it. But, but giving you the tools that you need. But as you take the Word of God in, as you have a diet of the Word of God, it is the Word of God that changes lives. It's not programs. It's not, you know, different things that we do. It's the Word of God. And so Paul wants them to pray that the Word of the Lord may, may run swiftly and be glorified just that is, as it is with you. And then he says, And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So, you know, there's some, there's some situations where um, you can never win with certain people, right? The Bible says in Proverbs in 26, 
It says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then the very next verse says what? Which is it? It says, answer a fool according to his folly, if you didn't hear that. So don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. Which one is it? Both, right? And there's a time. There's a, there's a, there's a, a discernment that you have as a believer that, you know, there's a time where it's just arguing. How many of you guys have won arguments on Facebook recently? Like the other person changed their mind. They got on your side. They dropped their flag. There was a story. You know, we can't please everybody, you guys. There's a story about a guy and his son. And they're, they have a donkey. And they're, the dad's riding the donkey. And the son is walking next to him as they're going through town. And some people in town see them. And they're like, oh, that dad, he's so mean. He's making his son walk. And he's riding that donkey. And so the dad hears it. And he, he gets off the donkey. And he puts his son on the donkey. And he starts walking next to him. And then they're, they're, they're going downtown. Other here, other people say, that son, he has no respect for his father. He doesn't honor his elders. And what's wrong with that kid? So the dad says, okay. So then he gets on the donkey with the son, and they both ride the donkey. And people look at it, and they say, that poor donkey, those two people putting all that weight on that heavy donkey. So then they both get off and walk. And people are saying, how stupid are they? They have that donkey right there. They won't even use it. What a waste. What a resource. So then the two guys pick up the donkey and carry it down the road. And the moral of the story is that if you, you know, if you try to please everybody, you're going to become the donkey. You know, you, you really can't, you can't win. And we're not supposed to be, to be men pleasers. I always say if you want to make everybody happy, you have to what? Sell ice cream. That's the only thing that will make everybody happy. But here again, you know, Paul's saying that, that, with people that are unreasonable and as we argue and as we try to make people happy and we try to, that we're not supposed to do that, that we're not supposed to, how does he say it? And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. And so Jesus told us not to cast our pearls before swine. And in the Proverbs verses where it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, answer a fool according to his folly, is that as Christians, it's kind of a a dichotomy, right? Because we, we want to be people who share our faith. In order to do that, sometimes you have to argue with folks. And not, I don't like the word argue, but you have to reason with people. And, but what you have to do is you just have to discern, are you, are you reasoning or are you just arguing? And listen, nobody's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. And the Bible says, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls before swine. If you're trying to share the gospel with somebody who just wants to argue, there's a discernment that you're not supposed to answer that fool according to his folly. But if someone genuinely wants to learn and has a question and is growing, then you can talk to them. You can you can then you're supposed to answer that fool according to his folly because in that he might grow and learn. But it's a discernment that you need, and it's definitely an attitude, right? The Bible says to live at peace with all men as much as depends upon you. You could get on a soapbox, and, you know, I say this all the time, but, you know, especially with what's going on right now with, you know, the civil unrest and the BLM rallies and, you know, those things that are going on, is that you, you could get on your fa- on your soapbox, which usually is Facebook or Instagram or something, and, you know, you, you can win an argument. But if you win an argument and you lose a friend or you lose a soul, you, you lost. And, you know, I never want to do that. Like, I want to stand up for what I believe and what's right. And, and, I, and I try to use that discernment where it's time where I'm just casting pearls before swine and God doesn't want me to do that. And I'm answering a fool according to his folly. And there's, there's no wisdom in, in getting involved. 
And nine times out of ten, that's usually the case. You know, I'm pretty good about it, too, on Facebook. But every once in a while, I just, I lose it. And I get on there and say some stuff I shouldn't say. And, um, but I never win with it, you know. And so God says, Paul says, to deliver us. And then verse number four, it says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both, that you do and will do things we command you. So Paul has confidence and speaking to the church. I missed verse three, huh? I'm sorry. But the, so you got to get two and three together. And that we may be delivered from the unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, whom will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Camp on verse three for a minute. Draw your attention to three. Read through that. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Now, you know, I, I, I like this and I agree with Paul that the Lord will establish you. You know, God will establish those that are his. You know, one of the things that happens in church is that we have this kind of responsibility and this onus to, as people become Christ followers and Christians, is that we want to, and rightfully so, disciple people to become Christ followers. And there's a process. But oftentimes I think the, 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 the heavy burden gets put on me as the pastor or the church that it's, it's my absolute responsibility to see people that come to Jesus get discipled and make sure they're growing. And Jesus said some 30, some 60, 100 fold. And again, I want to take that responsibility. It's my call as a, as a Christ follower, as a pastor, is to disciple and lead folks. But at the same time, oftentimes I need to take that burden off of myself and put it back where it belongs. Because on those that, that, that are Christ, God is ultimately sovereign and responsible for establishing those that are His. And again, it doesn't take my responsibility away from leading people. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that we did, we do this men's program. And it's been one of the most successful things that God's done here in seven years. You know, we've had a men's discipleship program. And those men that have come through that program have, you know, really grown in the Lord a ton. And, and I remember going through a season and some of the guys saying to me, hey, when are we going to do class again? Because when we were doing class, I was really growing in the Lord. And it was like this pressure, like, oh, my gosh, they're not going to grow in the Lord if I don't do this class. And, and finally, I just had to say, no, that's, that's not right. Like, I'm supposed to do that class, and they're supposed to grow during that season. But at some point, I have to communicate that the responsibility for these men to grow in Jesus belongs to who? It belongs to them. It belongs to you. It belongs to God. And listen, I can encourage you with this. God will establish those that are His. I think about my own life. I, I mean, when I became a Christian, I was the, I was the farthest thing away from church people and I was as green as they come. I had no church in my background, no history. You know, we had this kid at Joshua Springs when I was doing youth. And he was just, he just, I don't know, punk rock? Is that a good way to describe him? Maybe I'll give you a picture. You know, green hair, mohawk, things in his face. Who knows, you know? Weird clothes and jackets. And he used to wear this T-shirt to church in youth group. And it said, just be thankful I'm not your kid. And I used to thank God he wasn't my kid every day. But, but he, taught me, he taught me something really important because I, I used to think, you know what, I want to be careful and I want to make sure that, again, I love that young man because I was that young man. Because that was me at his age. Like, that's how far I was and how, you know, and, and, and so I came to Jesus alone in my room. God did a miraculous call of God on my life. The way I got saved was I wasn't in a church service. I was um, alone in my room and God had a call on my life. The first church I got involved in the pastor was older, and he, the first church, I was really sat in the chairs every week and was coming, and they didn't have any discipleship program, and it wasn't hip, and it wasn't for young people, and it was like, honestly, I was there for probably like eight months in that first church, and to this day, I always ask myself, do I remember one thing that guy taught in eight months? And I do remember one thing. 
he was telling a story about how he would pour his coffee. And if he poured it too fast, it would spill out of the crepe out the thing. So he had to pour it really slowly. I don't know what it means or what the illustration was about. I just remember the cup of coffee. That's all I remember. But, and, and again, it didn't fit any of the models of discipleship and of, of reaching the young and the new people. And I was, you know, totally a fish out of water. But do you know what happened? God established me in the Lord. Because God had a plan. And I became a disciple of Jesus. Eventually I got in a different church about, like a little bit later, there's, you know, that's when kind of my experience where Calvary Chapel started. We started a family I was living with, started the Calvary, going to Calvary Chapel and started growing in the Word and had, had a much better experience there. But God established my heart. Amen? And so, you know, God establishes. And it says the Lord is faithful and He will establish you. And then listen, He will guard you from the evil one. Now, now, just really quickly on the Lord guarding your heart. Again, it's kind of the same concept, but I want you to understand that um, God, the, the world can't defeat you. you. You cannot be defeated from the outside. You remember the story of Balaam? Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. He had a donkey. He's the one who, who would talk to his donkey, and his donkey veered off the road, and he hit him. Well, Balaam was on his way to Israel, and there was another king, a foreign king, a pagan king named Balak. And Balak came to Balaam, the prophet of Israel, and he said, I will make you very, very rich if you'll curse the people of Israel. And, and Balaam said to Balak, I want the money. I think it's a good idea. He said, but I just want to let you know, I can only say what God will give me to say. And the king said, okay. So they go up and they get up on top of the mountain and they're overlooking the camp of Israel. Now that's, that's in numbers, but that's a fascinating kind of picture right there too, because the, the Israel would have set up camp according to the numbers in the Old Testament in the shape of a cross. So the temple would have been in the middle with the tribe of Levi. And then from there, the, the different tribes, four tribes this way and tribes this way. But it would have shaped a cross, this big camp. So when you would be on a hill looking down over the camp, and Balaam is there, and he opens his mouth and he begins to prophesy over the nation of Israel. And he starts prophesying the most beautiful blessings over God's people. And Balak, the king, is like, dude, you're blowing it. You could become very rich, and all you're doing is blessing me. He said, I told you, all I could give you is what the Lord would give me. He said, I cannot curse God's people. He said, but God can curse them, and I can teach you how to curse God's people, but, you, but they can't be cursed from the outside. And he said, tell your pagan women to be scantily clad and start going through the camp and entice the men to sleep with them. And the men, if the men do that, then God will have to judge it. And that's exactly what Balak did. And, the, and he sent the women through, and then God had to judge them. But the story was that we can't be, as, as Christ followers, we can't be defeated from the outside. You know, I don't know how true all this stuff is. I don't get into too much of this stuff, but I, I listened to it. I've heard it. I've followed it. But there was a, a particular witchcraft person in New York City. This guy's a Christian now. has Christian testimony. He goes around. And again, I don't know how much stock to put in all this stuff. But he, he claims that he would perform, you know, and they'd pay this guy $20,000, $30,000. He was way up in the, in the family generational witchcraft stuff. And that when he put a curse on somebody's business or on somebody's life, and he was in New York City, that it was effective and their business would crumble or things would happen. And he said people would come to him with, with again, lots and lots of money to hire him to perform curses on Christians. And he said, I never would take the, take the clients. He said, I don't care how much money they offered me. I just tell them the truth. I can't curse Christians because they're protected. And, you know, the, John says what? John says, 
that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. And so, you know, again, the outside can't defeat you. Satan, he's, he's really not that formidable of an enemy. You know, from, from the, the onset, the Bible says about Satan, he says when, you, when we see him for the first time, we're going to say, oh, that's the turkey that gave us all the trouble? I, I mean, I don't know, I guess he's going to look like Pee Wee Herman, and he's not going to be very scary or intimidating, and we're going to be a little bummed out that we let him give us all that trouble. But he only can give you the trouble that, that you allow him to give because God said, it says here, and it's consistent in God's word, that God will guard you. That he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? And then it goes on, it says, um, verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both, that you do and will do the things we command you. That's what I do all the time. I command you guys what to do, right? No, I'll just say this. Paul could say that and get away with it, that you do the things that we command you. But I would never say that. But what I would say is that you do the things that the Word of God commands you. You know, we do a lot of counseling. We've done a lot of counseling over the years. And, you know, Pastor Gerald, my pastor, Lydia's dad, um, you know, he he told me a million times in counseling. He said, you know, the bottom line is what you find out in counseling is that people either they want to do what the Word of God says or they don't want to do what the Word of God says. You know, our job as counselors is, Christian counselors is to tell people, encourage people, point people in the direction of what the Word of God says for their situation, but they have the choice of whether they want to do it or not. And, and counseling is useless when people come and they just don't want to do what the Word of God says. And so you just have to be in a point where you, you, as Paul says here, you do what we command, that you do what the Word of God commands, that you've decided in your own heart, I want to do what the Word of God teaches me to do. I'm willing to do, I want to do, I will follow what the Word of God says. And then it says um, in verse number five, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, that word command, kind of strong there in verse six, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which you received from us. So Paul's warning them. I, obviously, um, what was happening in the church in Thessalonica where Paul planted was, you know, a lot of, some of the guys, because they thought they had went into the seven-year tribulation or the rapture was so imminent that they, they became, as he said in verse number one, right, that they were, um, or verse two, unreasonable and wicked. And now here he's going to use some more adjectives to describe them. But basically what was going on in Thessalonica at this time was that a lot of the guys stopped working. And they said, oh, we're just, you know, we're just going to live for God. Jesus is coming back. We're, we've entered the tribulation period. And then because they wouldn't work, they, they became busybodies, and they, they were gossips, and they were causing problems. And then not only that, but they were claiming that they were the spiritual ones in the church because they had the faith to believe that they didn't need to work and quit their jobs. Well, how long can you not work and, and, and not get hungry? And so then they were showing up at, at your house at dinner and saying, feed me. And, and, and they, weren't, they wouldn't work, and they were wanting the church to provide for them and became a burden to the church. And so Paul is warning against these folks in Thessalonica, and, and really it applies to us today that, you know, we get in the church sometimes, and the church tends to, gro- to draw them. We get sometimes unruly people. We get sometimes unreasonable people. And there does come a time where we have to ask people to leave church because we've discerned that they're not here to grow. They're here to cause trouble. And as a shepherd, when you have a wolf that shows up, you're not a good shepherd if you don't, if you don't get rid of the wolves. You know, you know what the, the sheep do when the shepherd gets rid of the wolf? They get mad at the shepherd. Oh, that's so mean. He just wanted to come and grow in Jesus. 
No, he didn't. He was a wolf, and I'm protecting you. But we don't see it, and oftentimes it does. You know, when you have to use tough discipline in church or you have to, you know, give somebody the left hand of fellowship or ask them not to come back. You know, but in Paul's day, it was completely different because, you know, if you got, and he's going to go on and he's going to say, listen, the purpose of getting rid of them, of having nothing to do with them, of asking them to leave, is not to hurt them. Paul said, my heart is to love them, to see them grow in Jesus, but the purpose is so that they'll repent and they'll want the love of the body of Christ. They'll want to be a part of the church. They'll want to come back. And it wasn't like in the in Thessalonica that if you got mad at, you know, this church, you just go down the tre- street next week like it is today to another church. It was like when you left the church, like you didn't have nothing. There was nowhere else to go. So you had to get right and then go back. Now that dynamic we've lost because now people just, they don't like what I say. They just go to a different church. And there, there's, a, there's a right and a wrong place for that, you know. I, I had a pastor say one time, which I, I, can, I can agree with sometimes, what part of the body leaves your body and joins another body. There's only one thing that leaves a body and joins another body, and that's a disease. You know, and sometimes it, it can be a disease, and sometimes when we have, you know, these, these things that Paul's describing here, diseases show up. That's a tough word to call somebody, huh? Disease? Just kidding. You know what I'm saying, right? That when they're trouble, we discern their trouble. So verse 6 says, We command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, not according to the tr- tradition which you see, he deceives you. So again, we have these exhortations. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 18 that when somebody begins to cause trouble or somebody begins to go down a certain road, that there's a three-step process of how we should we should bring them back into the body. First, you should go to them directly, and you should tell them, hey, this is what's going on, and try to talk to them. If they won't receive your, your, your counsel, then it says you go and get a witness, and you go back, and two of you talk to them. And then, and then if you still don't get any results, then you go and you get the pastor or the leader or somebody in leadership and eldership, and the three of you go back and have the discussion to try to resolve the problem. That's Matthew 18. But, you know, sometimes I've, I've had situations where people have come and, and I've just had to ask them to leave and not come back, and it's not been pretty. And believe me, it's not something I like to do. It's not something that we, we relish in, but it's biblical and it's necessary. And somebody might say, well, why didn't you Matthew 18 them? Why didn't you go through the three-step process with them? Well, because five other places in the Bible, I'm commanded, I don't have to Matthew 18 them because they've already crossed that line, and, and, and I'm commanded to have nothing to do with them, to withdraw from them, to um, not have them be a part. And that's what Paul's saying here. And then in verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be burdened to any of you. So again, these fellows that wouldn't work in the church because they were so spiritual and they were waiting for Jesus to come back um, were causing a burden on the body. And again, as Christians, we're, we, we tend to want to help people and serve people and love people and our hearts go out. And so they were being very generous with them, but there, there kind of came this point where they, they were being taken advantage of. And so Paul's going to say to them, listen, you don't have to be taken advantage of by these people. And then, then Paul uses himself as an example. What did we do? What did Paul and Timothy and Silas, when we first got here, what did we do? He says, we worked. Paul worked as a what? Who knows? A tent maker. In the book of Acts, it says that Paul would wear bandanas and headscarves, and they would be full of sweat, and he would lay them on the workbench at the end of the day, and people would touch them and get healed. And um, you know, But the point is that Paul was working with the sweat of his brow, and he was working hard every day. 
And so Paul's going to go on. He's going to say it's not because we couldn't receive an offering or be taken care of by the church. We actually can. And in some places where the churches were bigger and Paul was busier and had more to do, he, he, he only the church would take care of him and provide for him. But when he got to Thessalonica, he, he would work. And Paul worked hard. And the way that the, the day would go is that they would, uh, they would work in the morning. And then in the heat of the day, there was no air conditioning and fans and those types of things. So from like noon to four every day or whatever the time was, the the businesses and the workshops would all close down. Everybody would go home and take a siesta or a nap. Then they'd come back to work and like work four to eight or whatever, four to nine. And that's how your workday would go. A couple hours in the morning when it was cool, take the middle of the day off and come back in the evening and work. They had it right, huh? We're just smarter than we have air conditioning now, but... Um, but Paul in that middle time, rather than taking his siesta, he would take those, those couple of hours in the middle of the day and he would go to the synagogues and he would go to these places where he was planting churches and he would teach the Bible. So he'd get up in the morning, he'd go to work, he'd go to church, he'd, he'd work at church until the time was there and he'd go back to work. And he, and he tells the people, listen, this is the example we set, not because we couldn't, but because we wanted to be not a burden to you. You know, Lydia and I, when we came here to Tooele, it was the same thing. I've been a staff pastor my whole life and you know, I don't have a lot of other skills at 21, 22 years old. I went to Bible college and, you know, I had a couple of auditing jobs before that, but no, no real training. And then I've been a staff pastor ever since. And so when I came here, I didn't have a ton of skills outside of the church, but the church was just starting. And, and so we worked. I had a full-time job and a couple full-time jobs and Lydia's worked. And then there came a season where the church grew and there was enough um, need and enough time to where we didn't have to do that anymore. But we went through that season as Paul as Paul taught us. And then he says, um, verse number nine, not because we did not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Did you know that? Did you guys know that was in the New Testament? That sounds like some Old Testament like judgment stuff of God, like. If you won't work, you won't eat. And if you don't work hard enough, I'll strike you with lightning. This, I love this. This is New Testament. This says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That's God's directive for you and I. Now listen, I want to be c- clear. This says, if a man, this is a matter of the will. This says, if a man will not work. It's not, it excludes anybody who cannot work, right? We have um, lots of people who cannot work because of, disabilities or because of injuries or because of things. That's a different matter altogether. But what God's Word really doesn't have any sympathy for is a healthy man who will not work and just doesn't want to work. You know, at Joshua Springs, I, I oversaw all of the benevolence thing. And it's a, it was a big church. And so what happens in a big church and is that daily almost, and I mean definitely a couple times a week, we get people that show up and they ask for money. And you know, and I've told you guys the stories. We have it happen here. I had it happen here a couple of weeks ago. I shared with you guys a story. But we, we had to develop a policy of how to deal with them. And we wanted to develop a very biblical policy of generosity and of, of wisdom as well. So oftentimes when somebody would show up and whatever the story was, and I, I don't know how they do it, but unfortunately for them, the stories are always the same. They are. They're always the same. Like the ones, the calls I get all the time now, I'm in Lake Point and I'm stuck and I got I came with this something and now they all left and now I'm here alone and I need a ride. I need to get back to Canada or Washington and the only way I'm going to do it is just money like because you offer help in different ways. So the stories end up the same. But when a healthy person would come in, a man come in and he'd ask the church for money, 
um, what we would do. And oftentimes I'd go out and I'd meet him. I'd say, okay, here's the deal. Come tomorrow. Be here at 8 a.m. We got we to gotta paint the, the D building. Or come, we gotta we got to do the weeding or we got to do this or that. And I'd have some um, maintenance project. And I, and I would say, meet me here at 8 a.m. And if you can work for eight hours, um, I'll, I'll pay you and I'll pay you well. And, and, you know, and it's temporary. I can't hire you full time, but I can give you a day, a couple days, maybe a week's worth of work. And, and that will help meet your needs. And so they'd say, okay, great. Every once in a while, every once in a while, we'd have one of them come back and show up and meet me at 8 in the morning and work and do a good job. And, and then those people, we'd, we'd go to the ends of the world with and help them. But nine times out of ten, they, they wouldn't come back. They were, I wouldn't see them the next day. But, but it, came, it actually was a pretty good, pretty good way of dealing with it was that, hey, we'll, we'll offer you work. We'll pay you for working, um, and, and you can come. But they, they never would. But the Bible says, again, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. And so these, again, what happened was happening is there in Thessalonica was that um, these men were healthy and they were, they just wouldn't work because the rapture was coming and because they were in the tribulation. And, and then the worst part about it is, too, is that they, they, they claimed they were more spiritual than everybody else along the process. Those are the worst type of people, right? Like they're fake holier than thou's. So then in verse number 10, it says, 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. So that's the description of, of verse 10. And then here he gets on to the, um, the idea of a busybody. And again, you know, how's that old saying go? Idle hands are the devil's playground. Yeah, that's not in the Bible, by the way, but... Um, it's kind of true, right? When you have too much time on your hands, you're going to get into something. And so because they weren't working, they were hanging around the church, they were mooching off the family for food, and, and they wouldn't work, that they, they became gossips, and they knew everything about everybody, you know? You know you know how you know somebody's a gossip, right? Is when they, that one guy, that one gal who knows everything about everybody else, like, I don't know everything about everybody else. How is it that you always know everything about everybody else? Oh, no, they just come and tell me. Well, no, if they just come and tell you, it's probably because they'll listen. You know, if somebody starts gossiping to you about, let's just use me, for example. What if somebody comes to you and starts saying, you know, Pastor Chris, just tell him this. Hey, have you told Chris that yet? Let's go, let's go get Pastor Chris and you tell him what you just told me. Oh, no, they don't. Or go, you know, go tell the person you're talking about. They won't do that. Bring them, bring them directly to the source. Oh, just don't listen. You know, it takes two to gossip, right? A person who's talking and a person who's listening. And, and gossip is a sin. And gossip is a, is, is a problem in a church. It's, it's, and Paul's warning us against it. So, you know, just don't listen to it. And, and here's the thing. Listen, if you establish yourself as somebody who's just known that you're not going to put up with it, you're not going to deal with it, you're not going to entertain it, they won't keep coming to you. They'll find an ear. They'll find somebody who, who's easy to talk to, who will talk back. Oh, yeah, yeah, not only that, but did you hear this? And round and round we go. But just be careful of that. Idle hands, idle talk. And, and God doesn't want nothing to do with it. He tells us to have... Um, to withdraw from every brother who walks in this order. And then in verse 12, he says, Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. You know, one of my favorite verses, simple verses, is in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just back one page. Just hang out. I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4:11 says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. You know, there's kind of a biblical concept, and Paul mentions it here again in, 
um, 2 Thessalonians uh, verse 12 that I just read, that you, that you aspire, that you desire to work in quietness and eat your own bread. In the other place, he says, desire just to lead a quiet life. Listen, there's something that's godly about a simple life. You know, and I, I'm, I'm encouraged with that because, you know, I kind of grew up where, you know, like you wanted to be somebody and, you know, you wanted to be a famous rapper. And then maybe a lot of our kids, they see this, now it's the Instagram and it's these, these influencers and these guys who get paid millions of dollars to play video games online all day. And, you know, it's like, they, they, and they're very few and very select, but whatever it is, it's something above us and beyond our means that we look to and we think, man, if we could do that, if we could be a famous actor or famous sports person, that life would be so grand, if we could be a rock star. But you know what? There's really something valuable about a simple life, this, bi- this Bible. To me, like, can, can you imagine, like, what if, what if you got super famous today? Would that be a blessing or a curse? To me, it would be such a curse. Like, those guys, I watched that special on Michael Jordan, the one that's going on a 10, 10 series special. I forget what it's called, The Last Dance. But you, you learn in that, like, that guy couldn't leave his hotel room. He couldn't lead a normal life for so long because wherever he went, there'd be so many people that would mob him and ask for his autograph. And it just, you know, like, you just can't go to the grocery store. You can't, you can't do anything. And that's, that's a curse, not a blessing. And the Bible talks about just a simple life. You know, you go to work, you provide, you put food on the table, you raise your kids. But there is blessing, a great blessing just in simply serving God, living a simple life. You know, Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And we're going to do it until, you know, until the Lord comes back and if the Lord tarries and until He takes us home at a ripe old age of natural causes. And, and in the meantime, you know, we do life. And, and so this, it's okay and it's good just to have a simple, quiet life for the Lord. Amen? And in verse 13, we're almost done. It says, um, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Hey, you guys, read that verse with me. Verse 13 together. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. One more time. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, this is my life verse. More times than any other verse in the whole Bible, this particular verse has ministered to me because I'm constantly doing so much good that I'm just like, don't grow weary, Christian, doing good. You're always doing good everywhere you go and everything you do is so good that it just, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But hey, it, it is here for a reason and it fits because, again, there, there's, there's trials and there's trouble in life. And here at the Thessalonican church, they're, they're really trying to do what's right. And they have these brothers that are coming in and pretending to be spiritual and won't go to work and are causing burdens. And, 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 and as you guys know, as we've been talking about and studying, the church in Thessalonica was facing great tribulation. They had a Bible study in Jason's house. It got broken up and everybody got beat up. Paul was only there three weeks. He was only there for three weeks, not because he wanted to leave, but because the persecution was so heavy. They were going to kill Paul if they didn't skirt him out at night after only being there three weeks. And that persecution continued. And so the church is facing outside persecution. Now they're facing inside trouble of people who are, who are taking advantage of them. And Paul encourages them, in don't grow weary in doing good. It's repeated. Paul repeats the same thing to the Ephesians in that in that gospel. He says, don't grow, do, don't grow weary in doing well, for in due season you will reap a reward. But I'll tell you, what I think this verse is about, and really the ultimate motivator for this verse is heaven. 
that, that you and I, you live your lives. You know, I'll tell a joke around here. I've told it a hundred times. Not everybody knows it by now. But like just recently, someone cleaned all the windows for us out front of the church. They volunteered and they came. And it was before we tended them. They needed to get all cleaned. And so I told the person, I said, oh, hey, I got great news. I need all those windows. And they came up after church. And they said, I'll do it. And I said, okay, well, I got great news. The church is going to pay you so well, like better than you've ever been paid for any job. This is, this is, you're going to get paid so good for this job. That's the good news. The bad news is that you're going to have to wait till you get to heaven to get it. So if I ask you to do something for me, I'll always tell you, hey, you're going to get paid well. That's the good news. The bad news is you're going to have to wait till you get to heaven to get it. But that just is the reality. You know, how many of you guys have seen me do my analogy with the eternity rope? I almost brought it in today just because some of you probably haven't seen it. But I, I take a rope and, and I put just a little black mark on the end of the rope. And the rope may be 100 feet long and... You just imagine the rope just goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever. It's just the rope is a timeline. And that little black piece represents your time, your 70, 80 years here on earth. And then there's a little red line at the end of that where you die. And then the rest of the white part of the rope represents your eternity and how you're going to spend God and spend with God in all of eternity. So what you do in this little piece of, the, of your life of, in, in, the, in the big picture of eternity affects the rewards and and, and what God is going to do for you. And the things you're doing here for the Lord, whether you're washing windows for God and you're coming and volunteering, you're serving here, you're spending time in prayer, you're doing something to invest in God's kingdom, the Father sees those things and He's, and he's recording them in heaven. And you will be rewarded for those things in eternity. And in not growing weary and doing good, you have to have that eternal perspective that says, God, I know one day I'm going to be with you. I know one day that, that, that I'm going to continue to take the high road here when it's hard. When nobody around me is, I'm going to continue to live at peace with all men as much as depends upon me because I know that someday there, there is going to be uh, an eternal reward. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary, wrote books, and him and his, his, his group had a heart to go to the Aupa Indians. Um, I forget what island they were, what, what Central American country they were in. Anybody remember Jim Elliott, where they were? They were in a Central America, this particular tribe of, of Indians in Central America, um, they were they were well known for being headhunters, and they were they had no civilization. This was like in the 60s, and they had never seen any civilization. Well, Jim Elliott and his group went, and and they were trying to make contact with the Uka Indians, and they had a, a, a airplane, and they had a, a rope that would come down in a bucket, and they figured out if they could fly the airplane in a certain circle, that the bucket would just sit still on the bottom, and they were exchanging gifts with the with the Uka Indians. They would put stuff in the bucket and. The Indians would take it out and put stuff back in it, and they were trying to make communication. Well, they finally decided it was safe to go and, and try to make contact with them on the beach. And so Jim and, his, and a few of his men landed a plane on the beach, and, they, and some of the Aoka uh, Indians came out and heard the plane and seen them. And, and then behind them was about ten soldiers with spears, and they killed the four American uh, missionaries on the beach there that day. And Jim Elliott gave his life. And, you know, the story goes on and it gets better because – his wife and some of his brothers and other people on their team, they actually stayed in that country and in that place. And, and years later, they made contact with the Oka Indians and led them to Jesus. The son of Jim Elliott, um, whose dad died on the beach that day, he, the guy that killed him, he, he had a relationship with him and led him to Jesus. And like 30 years later, he brings that guy to the United States for the first time. The guy had never been outside of the jungle. And, and he was telling, he was telling the, the young son of Jim Elliott, he said, man, in America is so great. He said, everything is just free. Just go. And they just, 
go to the grocery store and you go to the, they were going through a drive-thru and getting food out the window. And, and he said, no, it's not free. He said, you see, I have to give them this little card, this little plastic card that I give them and, and then we get our food. He said, oh, don't be silly. He said, they just give it right back to you. Jim Elliott is the one who said, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. And so we, we give him this life to gain something that's eternal. And Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. You know, you know, one of the things that for all of us as Christ followers, listen, this is one of the things that will motivate us that is difficult to get our hands on and grasp and live this out every day. But it's, it's the concept of eternal perspective. That if every day you believe you're going you're gonna to see Jesus face to face one day and you're going to want to have something to offer him on that day, that you're going to live all of eternity in heaven with God and what you do here on the earth matters and what you do here on the earth, there's a reward for it. And the Bible is very clear that, that you know, salvation is a completely different issue. It's not a matter of who gets to heaven and who goes to hell. But for those that go to heaven, the Bible is very clear that there are varying levels of reward. It's called the, um, the Bema Seat Judgment, where we go and everything that we have is tried with fire. And all your good works are put through the fire. And what's wood, hay, and stubble is burned up. And what's precious gems is refined and comes out the other side as a reward. Jesus said some will receive five cities and some will receive ten cities in this um, analogy that there's different levels of reward in heaven. Jesus said, store up for yourself what? Treasures in heaven. How do you store up for yourself? Is there, is there treasures in heaven waiting for you? The answer is yes, if you've sent it. And when Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, that's real. That means that the things that you do here for God, it puts, you know, the, the analogy that Jesus uses, now I don't know that they're real mansions, because, you know, Jesus said, in my Father's houses are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, I'll receive you again to myself, that where I am, you there you may be also. And, and Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the, life, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. But that idea is that we're sending building materials up by our works. We've got to separate this from the salvation issue, right? Your works don't get you to heaven. What your works do is help give Jesus materials are you guys following this? For building that mansion that he says he's going to have for you. So when you get to heaven and it's two two-by-fours leaning against each other, and he's like, well, that's all the material you gave me. I did what I could do with it, you know, some sideways nails sticking through them. You know, or maybe, you know, maybe your works are sending up tons of material and you get there and you got a $3 million front door like one of Bill Gates' houses. You know, but I'll tell you what, Bill Gates can have the $3 million door here. I want the $3 million door there, so I'll keep my $50 door here and, you know, and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Um, we're almost done, you guys. Two more minutes, and we have a worship team come back up. So, again, the concept is heaven. You know, let me tell you one more thing about that. We have a missionary. He's going to be here in this pulpit on July 12th. His name is Jeremy Bear. Jeremy and Stacy, some of you guys know them. I encourage you guys to support them when they come. Um, you can go to their website and directly give them a monthly, even $10 a month, $20 a month, something to help their mission is a blessing. A one-time gift is a blessing. But Jeremy will be here on July 12th. He's going to preach for me. Um, Jeremy is a young man who um, was born and raised LDS in um, Utah his whole life. He became a Christian um, around 20 years old. And, um, and, and him and a, another kid knowing really nothing about 
you know, really too much training, decided to plant a church. They, they were involved with Calvary Chapel, so they planted a Calvary Chapel in northern Utah, um, in Ogden, North Ogden. And Jeremy was pastoring that church for about seven years. It was growing. It was probably, I don't know, bigger than Tooele Springs is now. And, and Jeremy was really involved with Calvary Chapel, and he was going to the, the pastor's conferences in Calvary Chapel. And because of who Jeremy was, Jeremy's just a super talented guy. You'll get, you'll get to know him. I always tell you, I, I always tease him that he's my man crush because, you know, he's, he's handsome like Rico Suave. The dude can preach like Levi Lesko. He, he plays the guitar and he's a musician. He sings like Jeremy Camp. Like, not one guy could have all the gifts, right? But Jeremy's that guy. And, of course, because he is that guy, Calvary Chapel um, offered him a position overseeing the Bible College in Europe. And so he went to Hungary to oversee Calvary Chapel Bible College um, Europe campus. And so he brought his whole family, three kids, and he went to tell his Mormon family what he was doing. And his mom was like so excited. Wow, Jeremy, you got like this, this really cool job in Europe. You're going to be running this college in Europe. She's like, wow, dude, what does that pay? And Jeremy had to tell her. He said, well, Mom, actually, it's true. He's like, actually, they don't pay me. I have to pay them. And she said, and it's a true story. He had to raise his own support. He literally had to pay them to go and serve a mission on the Bible college and support himself and get support. And he went to churches, and we were one of the churches that helped support him. But his mom said, you're a fool. What do you mean you have to pay them? Who, like, and really, outside of God, can you imagine that concept? Like, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to move my whole family to Europe. I'm going to leave a, a, a planted, thriving church that's growing and doing fine. And I'm going to go leave everything and move my family to Europe. And I'm going to pay them to do it. Like, the concept is crazy. But think of that eternity rope. And think of who's crazy when Jeremy gets to heaven. Is he crazy? Or did he invest in that white part of the rope that goes on and on and on forever? Did he store up his treasures in heaven, you know? And for all of us, to have that eternal perspective that, that it's, you know, Jesus is real and you're going to meet him one day, amen? I'm going to read the last verse as the worship team comes up. So let's have them come up and close us in a song. And then it says um, in verse 14, And if anyone does not obey our word... In his epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he, may be, that he may be ashamed. Listen, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a what? As a brother. So again, this is the third time. Verse 14 is the third time where Paul has used strong language to command us to have nothing to do with those people. Get rid of them. Um, don't, don't hang out with them. He's even, you know, even in the language, it's like, don't even take them out for lunch. Like, don't go hang out with them on the side and tell them, hey, you got to get a job first. Once you get a job, then we'll go hang out. Then we'll be, you know, but really strong language that that, that person who's causing trouble in the church or a busybody, they won't work, have nothing to do with them. But then he, he tells us really through all of this what his heart and what our heart needs to be in, in dealing with these people. And he says, but yet, do not count him as an enemy and admonish him as a brother. The whole point of it is, is tough love. It is to love somebody and to see somebody be restored and come to Jesus. Amen? You know, Paul talks about this concept in another place, that sometimes we put people out or we give people over to, to Satan um, so that he might buffet them. And when, he, when they run into this trouble, they'll come back to God. And, and so the, it's still wrapped in the love of Jesus. 
You know, we're not counting that person as an enemy, and we're not against them. We want to see them grow. We want to, you know, thing we've been talking about, right, a lot recently is that God loves all people. You know, it's come up through all the civil unrest that's happened the last couple of weeks and months that, you know, just a reminder for us that, you know, people are in different places, and God has a ton of grace for all people, no matter where they are. And if they had bad ideas, and they have bad concepts, and they have whatever, God loves those people, and He has a ton of grace for them, and we should love those people and have a ton of grace for them. Amen? And then it last, last two verses is just a benediction. So in verse 16, it says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always, in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. So the moral of the story is that if you want to please everybody, you've got to sell ice cream. But we're not supposed to be men pleasers. We're supposed to be God pleasers. You know, and we do want to do it with integrity. And within the house of God, there, there is a place for some rules. There is a place for some order and some structure. You know, Paul told the Corinthian church, and with the Corinthian church, they, they were kind of highly emphasized upon the gifts of the Spirit. And they were speaking in tongues out of order, and they were doing some things, you know, that, that were out of order. And Paul says to the Corinthian church that he was a fan of the gifts, but that everything should be done decently and in order. And so God has a, a certain order that he wants us to follow, and a certain way he wants to do us, but all wrapped in the heart of what God is trying to accomplish, and that is to love and reach all people. So on your soapboxes and on your, your Facebooks and, you know, on your arguments, again, you, you can win that argument and you can lose your, your, your witness and you can lose your opportunity to witness people because you've alienated yourself from them. And I think it's a fine line to walk. It's a tough line to walk. And, and you don't have to walk my line or be where I'm at. Some of you have, you know, obviously your own line to walk, your own opinion. But for me, you know, I, I try to do it in such a way that, that I can stand my ground and, and do it in a way that I can not needlessly offend somebody so that I still maintain and keep the opportunity to share Jesus with them one day. And even unruly people, you know, even people that you think today would never receive Jesus, maybe if you can find a way to extend an olive branch and love them and, and, and build a bridge rather than break one and tear one down with something that you, you know, some soapbox or some argument you want to win. And, and maybe in a year from now, when God begins to work on their heart, they're going to think, Who, do I know a Christian that I can talk to in this time? And they may say, oh, that one particular Christian, he was nice, he was loving, and, 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 and I can reach out to him. Or do we just alienate ourselves? And when that point comes and God's Spirit begins to work on their hearts, they're like, that's the last person I want to talk to right now. So finding a way, right, to love all people, to reach all people. And we got a big picture mentality, you guys. We, we got a big picture mentality. You know what's going to solve this world's problems? It's not our next president. It's not our next congressman. It's not our next hashtag. What's going to solve these world's problems? And they're never going to get solved until we enter the millennial reign, until Jesus comes and fixes these things. But in the meantime, it's, it's our heart, it's our goal, it's our plan to share Jesus with a lost and dying world. And we've got to find a creative way to do that, especially in the days we live. Find a, find a way and, and just have that, that mentality that it's that white part of the rope that we're living for. It's eternity that we're living for. Amen? Amen. Hey, uh, Pat's up front to pray with you guys. If you'd like individual prayer, um, Josh and Amber will be up front to pray with you. If anybody would like individual prayer as we sing this last song, we invite you to come up and pray with us. Amen?
Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you for this very practical chapter. And I feel like we've taken such a left turn from where we've been the last couple of weeks studying prophecy and um, all these things about the end times and antichrist and raptures and second comings. And today we just get a practical um, chapter, God, of, of just how to live our lives as Christians, how to, how to not be unruly, that we're supposed to work hard, that we're supposed to provide, and that, Lord, we're supposed to provide for our families. And so, Father, we, we thank you. And, Lord, I pray for each person that's in here now. I pray if there's somebody that is not sure when they leave this place that they're born again, if they're a Christian, if they're going to heaven, that they would take a moment right now just to say yes to Jesus, that they would come up for prayer and let us pray for them to receive Jesus in their lives. And, God, I know that we have many different needs that are represented in this room. And so, Father, I pray that you would meet our needs and that, Father, you would... Um, that you would touch us and meet us right where we are. Lord, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to help each one of us to, to reach across the, the blurred lines and love the unlovable, to reach the unreachable, to, to extend olive branches instead of wind fights. And Lord, that we have a big picture mentality. We're willing to lose an argument today to win a friend in order to win a disciple and win somebody to Jesus. God, I pray for opportunities for us to share the gospel in our daily lives. And Lord, every day I pray that prayer. Give me an opportunity today to share the gospel with somebody. Lord, put something in my path. And so Lord, I pray for us as a church that this coming week you would put things in our path that would be opportunities to share the love of Jesus, to share the gospel. And Lord, when that opportunity comes, Lord, Lord, give us the words. And help us not to be afraid or worried in that time. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Again, if you'd like individual prayer, we invite you to come up. Uh, let's worship the Lord together.